values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. So another twist and turn in what we're seeing with election integrity in Arizona. I will tell you a couple of things. Early voting is not going anywhere, although there are some that want it to go away. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, And you have to just talk about the history of early voting and mail-in voting, as we call it here in Arizona. Um, It's not going anywhere. It has been largely not just supported by, but has been used by Republicans more than Democrats for a very long time here in Arizona. And now all of a sudden it's the enemy of the state. I don't think it's going anywhere, but that doesn't mean it can't be improved. That doesn't mean that the way we vote can't be fixed without stopping people or hindering people from being able to vote. The idea of having to show an ID to vote is is something I think most people, the vast majority of people, agree with. So having an election integrity conversation, and this was at a joint session of of a committee, joint committee at the legislature, was supposed to be about reasonable, common sense ways to ensure voters in Arizona that our elections are free, fair, and honest. And uh, what that was supposed to be turned into a sideshow. And it turned into a sideshow. And this is now a Republican a representative that brought this witness and this testimony to the to the front. But it's being condemned and questioned by fellow Republicans. Um, if you talk to uh, Ben Toma, who is the Speaker of the House, you've got Warren Peterson, who is the Senate president. You've got the majority leader in the Senate in uh, Sonny Borelli, and they're talking about how this happened. And if you don't understand the story, uh, Representative Liz Harris, which is – she's a freshman. She's made a name for herself saying she doesn't care what people think. She's not voting for anything until we redo the election, that the election was stolen. And she's made a lot of waves within her own party. Um, I've had you know conversations with people that think that this is counterproductive. But at this joint hearing, she brought in testimony, brought in someone to testify that brought up these outrageous claims with absolutely no proof to any of these claims. Now, again, I don't know if there's any truth to any of it, and neither does she. And no proof has been offered. And this is where it gets to be problematic on a couple of levels. Number one, it levels accusations against people at the highest levels of our government here in Arizona. Our current governor, who was then secretary of state, our current secretary of state, who was at one time the county recorder um, in Adrian Fontes, uh, members of the county board of supervisors, members of um, all levels of government in Arizona are being accused of being a part of a drug cartel money laundering scheme involving real estate, taking bribes, bribing public officials. When you use that phrase anywhere, if I come on the air and I say so-and-so is accused of bribery, I'm I'm good. I've got no problem. If I come on the air and I tell you so-and-so has been bribed and I use a name and I've got no proof of that, I'm in big trouble. So is this radio station. Because I have just made an accusation on the radio about someone and I've gone after someone's character. Now, how much more important is it when that testimony is given in a legislative hearing in the state of Arizona where your representatives, whether you know they are represent your district or they represent your party, your representatives are holding an official hearing on elections. And this is um, angering to some But this is where politics in Arizona has gone off the rails, and it's one of the reasons why we continue to have these ridiculous conversations when it comes to election integrity. We should be able to say 
we're going to sit down and look at reasonable ways we can ensure that our elections are not tampered with. Without one side of the aisle accusing that person of wearing a tinfoil hat. Oh, come on. Elections are just fine. But that's where it's gone. This was supposed to be a reasonable hearing. As a matter of fact, um, that uh, Speaker of the House Ben Toma said this. What should have been a joint hearing to examine common sense election reform devolved into disgraceful fringe theater. This was part of a divorce proceeding, and it makes these outrageous accusations with no proof. Sonny Borelli, the majority leader, was asking for proof. Show us the report. Show us what's going on here. Um, And so far, nothing. Um, I think there are going to be lawsuits that follow. I think people are going to be sued individually. It might be as a body. The state of Arizona gets sued because it's a part of the official record. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. But in the end, as a citizen, I've heard people on both sides of the political aisle make accusations that our elections are tampered with, that they're not fair. I mean, Hillary Clinton herself continues to do it. And I keep bringing that up because if there are questions from either side of the aisle that keep that continue, Hillary Clinton questioned 2016. She wrote a book about 2016, um, and then she just made a video within the last six months saying that the um, Republicans, along with the Supreme Court, are going to try to steal the president election in 2024. So we've heard both sides of the aisle make accusations. And instead of having reasonable conversations about how do we ensure to the best of our ability to the American people that elections in America are the right thing, that we, we, the outcomes are legitimate, instead of having reasonable conversations about that, this is what happens. You have someone that's a freshman. I don't know if she didn't know any better. I don't know why she's so zealous about this topic. But it's different when you're an individual. If you want to be an activist as an individual, that's terrific. You know, even if I disagree with you wholeheartedly, anybody, and there are a couple of people out there that um, probably know I'm talking about them that are, in my opinion, overzealous in the way they do things with their activism. And I have been the brunt of some of their ire at times. But I respect the fact that they stand up for what they believe in. Even if at that time I disagree with your position, I can respect it. I can respect the fact that you're willing to stand up, take the heat, defend your position, and fight for it. I respect it. When you're an elected official, your words have a different meaning. And the higher you up in the, uh, you are up in the political chain, the more weight those words carry. When you are a member of the House of Representatives in the state legislature, you represent that body. When you are a Republican legislator, you represent that party. And when you do these things, the words you have and the words you use and the things you do either bolster that party and that body or they diminish them and they call them into question and they damage them. And this is damaging to me. I want you to hear Governor Hobbs addressing this issue because her name was one that was named. These are all really critical issues, issues that we should be having full day legislative hearings on, and we're not. Instead, we're having these circus shows. Um, That is a culmination, really, of two plus years of defamation of me and other election officials and other leaders. So... What you're doing, and I'm again, I'm going to be partisan. I talked about this earlier from a partisan point of view. What you have just done is put wind in their sails. You have loaded the gun for them to shoot you with. Republicans have been doing this now since 2020. 
instead of having a reasonable conversation, as the Speaker of the House, as Ben Thomas said, this devolved into this theater. And what's happened now, if you remember, Governor Hobbs was not on anybody's radar to be a gubernatorial candidate. She won the race. Um, your Secretary of State, Adrian Fontes, lost the election in Maricopa County for the county recorder's office. He now oversees elections for the entire state. I'm not calling either good or bad. I'm acknowledging or I want people to acknowledge that what you did backfired. There are people that were using election integrity and stolen elections as a rallying cry to win elections, and they lost. They lost. Every single Republican candidate that ran a race based on election integrity, that that was the number one issue, every one of those candidates lost. The only two Republicans that won their races were Republicans that didn't talk about it. They talked about their race. Tom Horn talked about schools and what it was like to be the superintendent in the past and what needed to be happening in the future to repair education, or I shouldn't say necessarily repair, rebuild education in Arizona after COVID. Kimberly Yee, the state treasurer, talked about the investments made and how she's going to continue to invest in that office to make sure that the state of Arizona remains solvent. I don't know where either one of those two stand on election integrity because it wasn't a part of their race. It wasn't a part of what their office did. So they didn't run on that issue. And here we are again, a hearing about reasonable things we can do to ensure our elections are fair. And it devolves into this theater that loads up the other side of the aisle that gives them the ammunition to call you crazy. And I think there's going to be lawsuits, and I think there probably should be. In a moment, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago loses her re-election bid. The reasons why experts are saying it happened. It's coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, a quick report from Chicago. Mark Remillard from ABC talking about the breakdown of Lori Lightfoot losing. Why does it matter to people in Arizona what happened in Chicago? I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from things that happen around the country, and I think we should. I want you to hear what they are saying happened and why Lori Lightfoot is the first mayor in 40 years to lose a re-election bid in the city of Chicago. Lori Lightfoot made history in 2019 as Chicago's first black woman and openly gay person to lead the city. But on Tuesday, she came up short for re-election. Regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. Lightfoot needed to win 50% of the vote to win outright or finish in the top two in a field of nine candidates to head to a runoff election in April. Neither happened as she came in third. Now candidates Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson will face each other in the runoff. So obviously the people of Chicago disagree with her that they fought the right fights and they put the city on a better path. The murder rate in Chicago sets another record. We are seeing violent crime on the rise in that city. There are so many different directions that they are going and policy plays a big role in a lot of this. And that's the lesson. That is the lesson. And I think that uh, here in Arizona, I think most of us growing up have heard, don't make the mistakes I made. Your parents tell you. Uh, My parents both smoked when I was little. My mom quit when I was young. My father never quit. He died smoking. Um, he smoked out literally until the day he went into hospice. My father was a smoker. Um, but they didn't, I never, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done, I just wasn't my, I never could imagine how the, the pleasure in inhaling smoke into my lungs. It wasn't a moral decision. I just thought it didn't look like it was any fun. Um, 
but my parents would have killed me if I had tried if I had taken up smoking. And it was hypocrisy, of course, they smoked, but it was don't make the mistakes I've made. As a parent, how many of you look at your life and say, if I can prevent my children from making the mistakes I made, I've accomplished something as a parent. We are relatively young in Arizona as a state and especially as a growing metropolitan area. It is growing by leaps and bounds, but I moved here 28 years ago. 30 years ago was not that long ago. 28 years ago, this was a completely different place. And when I talk to people that were born here or that have been here much longer than that, it changed dramatically between the 80s, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into where we are now. Um, but we are, we're not a blank canvas, but we definitely are a new city. When you look at the city of Detroit and the mistakes it made when and the market crashed and they went broke because of their obligations with pensions and with life insurance and things of that na- nature. They went broke and it was one of the richest zip codes in the country because of the automobile industry. Uh, diversifying your economy matters. Arizona learned that lesson the hard way in 0809. Are we learning lessons from other places? And I think we should. I think as we watched, and in the stack I have here, New Orleans is the murder capital of the country. They also have had 165% increase in carjackings. Carjackings across the country have gone up dramatically. There's only about a 50% rate of of closed cases when it comes to homicides nationally. Um, You look at the Portland area, they are saying that it's become a ghost town because of crime in that city and neighboring cities are trying to stop it from happening there. We should be learning lessons from those places and saying, I don't want to end up where they are. This is, I'm not criticizing Chicago as a city. I'm sure I've only been there once. I'm sure it's a beautiful place. And I know people from Chicago are proud of their heritage and you should be. I love New York City. But if we are not learning lessons here from major cities that have made mistakes, if you remember at one time, New York City went bankrupt. Former Mayor Giuliani, when he was known as America's mayor in the wake of 9-11, went a long way to cleaning up Times Square and that, that area and turned it into the tourist destination that it is now. Are we learning lessons from that? When we're hearing about cities and states that have dramatically different policies on crime and punishment, are we taking lessons from what we are seeing? We don't have a strong mayor system here in Phoenix. I I, I lament that. I think we should. I think that small towns can operate with a uh, with a city manager and small towns can do things like that. But when you're a major city, we should run it like we do our state government. You know, and what I mean by that is that your mayor should be your chief executive. But you also have the city council that they have to work with, but they have the veto power. I think that having a strong mayor system is best for a city. We don't have that. So this isn't directed just at our mayor. But, you know, our city council, as I talked about yesterday, the city council in Phoenix, there is a state law that says if your city confiscates firearms, they can't destroy the firearms. They have to sell those firearms to the public or you risk losing state funds. There are three or four members of the city council in Phoenix that think that that is a horrible idea. And I shake my head and I wonder why we've taken the guns. The police have taken the guns from the bad guys. They've taken them from the bad people, and they're going to sell them to the good people. It doesn't stop me from buying a gun anywhere. I'm going to go to Tombstone Tactical, or I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a gun from the city knowing that the dollars I just spent with the city are going to go into the general fund in the city. They don't want to be in the firearms business. What kind of a city do you want? What kind of an example are you following?
And I think these are lessons that all of us can learn. And what happened in Chicago, Chicago is not a conservative city. Most cities aren't. Most cities are very liberal. Counties and states may be red, but cities are blue. And Phoenix is one of them. But Chicago is dark blue. And in this case, the mayor didn't win re-election. And it's the same principle. Crime and punishment, man. Crime and punishment. In a moment, we talk about the border. I said earlier, I'm going to let you hear a little bit more of what uh, Sheriff Mark Lamb from Pinal County had to say to a congressional hearing. You'll hear more of his comments on the border next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. You know, from someone that's been in Arizona for uh, 28 years, I will say confidently that I am very happy, and I think all of us should be, that there is a conversation happening in many places about the border and serious conversations in Washington, D.C. Our new governor had promised to go down to the border within her first 100 days in office. She uh, did do that. I'm going to let you hear a little bit of what she is saying about the border. Whether I agree or disagree with some of the policy changes she might make, I'm glad she's paying attention to it. Uh, Sheriff Mark Lamb, which interesting, Pinal County, I say this a lot because if you're new to Arizona, you don't understand the boundaries necessarily. Pinal County is not a border county. Uh, technically, it doesn't border with Mexico, but it borders with tribal land. The Tohono O'odham Nation uh, straddles the border in Mexico going north. Its northern border is bordered with Pinal County. And Mark Lamb is known uh, as America's sheriff by a lot of people. He's, he's, he's made a pretty big platform for himself nationally, but is so well-versed on issues that are border issues, even though he is not directly on the, the southern border of the United States with Mexico. And it's because of what happens in his county, because of the trans the people uh, you know transitioning or, or, or transversing, uh, traversing the um, tribal land. So I want you to hear just a couple of things he said. I'm going to go back to one that I think is the most significant comment for all of us when he talked about the impact on women and children. When they come here, the women are being raped. We had a woman we caught a while back that had a baggie full of pills, and we said, what are these pills? And she says, well, when I came across the border, I knew I'd be raped multiple times. These are morning after pills. Have we lost our moral compass so bad that we put politics in front of people? They are raping the women, using the ch- raping the children, using them as pawns, oftentimes putting them in the sex trade here in America. Slavery is as prolific, uh, is super prolific nowadays. They are extorting the men. The cartel knows this. How many times can they sell you a pill? Once. How many times can they sell you a woman? Hundreds. How many times can they sell you a child? Hundreds. And this is what the cartel is doing. I mean... If that doesn't stop you in your tracks and realize there is a need to secure the border because of the cartels, nothing will convince you. Now he gave some statistics about the increase in drug in the drug crisis. In our county, we have seen a 600 percent increase in fentanyl in my community. In 2018, we had zero M30 fentanyl pill seizures. In 2019, we had around 700 pills. In 2020, we had over 200,000 pills. In 2021, we had over 1.2 million pills. And this last year, we had over 1.5 four million pills come into my community. I hope that one of you will ask me about xylazine, which is something we're now finding in our communities. 
So the statistics are staggering, and, and he was able to go along with some members of the healthcare community from southern Arizona and speak to a congressional hearing, speak to a House uh, committee on this issue. Um, governor Hobbs talking about what we need to do, and this is what the governor is saying we need from Congress. We need comprehensive immigration reform, and that is an act of Congress, and it's been really hard to get that done. And so I'm going to continue to advocate for that as well in a way that addresses needs of Arizonans. So let me now go back to a topic that I started with earlier in the day, and it was clarified. And I hope some of you will go and seek out uh, freshman House member Juan Siscomani, um, who absolutely hit it out of the park with the way and how concise he was. You just heard the governor talk about a different leg of the stool. In my, I, I say there's three legs of a stool when it comes to the issue of border security and, and, and immigration as a whole. There are three issues. One of them is immigration. The other is commerce and trade. And the third is border security. And they are independent of each other, but they intermingle. They work for and against each other, and they affect each other. The governor saying what we need from Congress is – Immigration reform is a separate issue from border security that saying somehow we have policies in immigration reform that would reduce the amount of illegal immigration is not stopping the cartels from controlling the border, which they do. The effective control of our southern border right now is in the hands of the drug cartels. I, I told this story again last night. I spoke to a group in, in Ahwatukee last night, and I told them a story about my youth growing up in South Florida where I did. Now, I wasn't on the Miami side and the Atlantic Ocean side. I was on the Gulf of Mexico side, but about as far south as Fort Lauderdale in the Fort Myers area, if you're familiar, just a little north of Naples. And I remember the shift because when we were kids, the DEA was chasing boats full of marijuana bales. And it shifted when the Cali cartel, but especially the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar, when these cartels started shipping in and dealing in cocaine. And it changed everything from the weapons our law enforcement were issued to the tactics that they use to the way those drug cartels operated. And the reason why I talked about the cartels in Colombia is because what happened in Colombia was remarkable. That the cartels grew in such power that not only were they at war with each other, they were at war with their own local governments. They were controlling police departments. They were controlling local government bodies. They were controlling the federal government in, in many, many ways. They were blowing up government buildings and killing politicians. They had effective control of anything they wanted, so much so that when Pablo Escobar knew that if he was captured – because George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, said, you know, we are going to go after these drug cartels. And if we can capture Pablo Escobar, we want to extradite him from Colombia, have him tried in an American court, which he did not control. And he'd spend the rest of his natural life in prison. So he made a deal with his own government to build his own prison. That's how powerful he was. He built his own prison. We have the cartels in Mexico, and a stable Mexico is good for the U.S. Border security and us being able to control the traffic across our own border matters. The ability to interdict drugs, the ability to designate the cartels, I would say with all due respect to the governor, what we need from the Congress isn't just immigration reform. That's a different leg of the stool. What we need is a designation that the cartels are terrorist organizations. What we need to do is take the fight to them in a way that they understand that we are taking our border very seriously and that we will not be denied sovereignty.
immigration reform, I think, is an important piece of things. I think in the end, we all want a robust uh, immigration system we can be proud of. But it all starts with border security. And what happens is we convolute all three legs of this stool together and you have people that say, if I don't get this, you don't get that. We are not going to have border security unless we get immigration reform at the same time. And this fight has been going on far too long. And it's time both political parties and the independents involved take a real look at the words and statistics of Sheriff Lamb with human trafficking and indentured servitude, slavery of young Young girls forced into the sex trades, the drugs that are pouring over our border and say that stops first. We are going to take the cartels seriously. We are going to help Mexico weed out those cartels. The last thing I'll say about this is when I was in New York last week or the week before, whenever it was. From the airport, from JFK into Midtown Manhattan, my driver was from Columbia. And I asked him, older guy, I asked him about it. What's Columbia like? Because I was just back last year. It's It's great. Completely different from what it was like in the 80s. Once the cartels lost the power that they had and the, and the stranglehold they had on the government there, it became a much safer place and a good place to visit. We have got to learn that lesson, and we've got to help Mexico weed out these cartels, period. Coming up in a moment, the American Federation of Teachers jumps into the conversation about student loan forgiveness. We'll talk about it and let you hear what they had to say coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, Some good news, um, kind of, and I want to make sure we highlight good things. Metro Phoenix Public Schools are some of the best in Arizona. See the list. There are a total of 36 public schools across the state of Arizona that have an A-plus rating for Schools of Excellence and that award from the Arizona Educational Foundation. The award started in 1983. It recognizes educational excellence in Arizona by evaluating success in teaching and learning strategies, student achievement, leadership, and community integration. Um, we have got to be more focused, I believe, on education. I, we, I talk about this really – I mean very, very often I talk about this. Um, but there is – I believe that K-12 through 12 schools, which we're talking about there now, is changing. I think there are major changes coming across this country. There is a bit of a revival happening in education, the importance of education. Uh, parents woke up during COVID and saw what their children were learning and how their children were learning, and they began to ask questions. And in many places, parents were not getting answers. And as a matter of fact, they were told to sit down and shut up. And when they wouldn't sit down and shut up, they were called domestic terrorists by the largest school board association in the entire country. The American Federation of Teachers and the National Educators Association are two major unions. Randy Weingarten heads up the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. And they are losing their stranglehold on public education, the dollars attached and the power that goes with it. So she is at a hearing that has nothing to do with K through 12 education. This hearing is at the Supreme Court and they are hearing arguments about whether or not the President of the United States has the constitutional ability to cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt at the college level. So she equates, I want you to hear her do this, she equates the PPP loans that were designed to be forgivable, she equates those with student loan debt. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge 
it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it. The corporations challenge it. The student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair. And that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. So let me give a little bit of a history that all of us are aware of. Number one, billions of dollars have been given to public education since COVID-19 for recovery. Millions, tens of millions of those dollars here in the state of Arizona have not yet been spent by the public school districts. It is at their discretion of what to do with that money. And it has not been spent in large part. I believe it's it's September of next year of 2024. They have until then to spend that money. So billions of dollars, it's not, those are not... We're talking about her wheelhouse, which is public education, K through 12. Colleges were given that money as well. But there were money given to the education world in order to uh, offset the learning losses during COVID-19. So billions of dollars have been given to public education for that. That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about the arbitrary cancellation of student loan debt. I will tell you that I know people that have student loans. I have family members that still have student loans. And they're not as I'm the oldest in my family, but they're not much younger than me that are still carrying student loan debt. Um, I feel for people that have that kind of debt. But I had business debt that I didn't necessarily wasn't my fault that it was created. But I made mistakes. I did the wrong thing. I think the ultimate problem here is this. Education is changing. Let's talk about the college level for a moment. A degree, any degree used to be a guarantee of a prosperous life. If you had a college degree, you knew it added significantly to how much money you were going to earn long term. That isn't always the case anymore. It still is in many areas, but in some areas it isn't. The cost of an education has gone up dramatically while the value of an education has diminished in in some degrees. And so – You see people that are coming out of college saddled with debt that say I've worked hard and they have worked hard. I've gotten my degree. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And they're offering me a job making $35,000 a year. How am I going to pay off my student loan debt and live on that kind of money? That's not the fault of the people that are hiring. Education and the, the debt has gotten out of control. The value has not grown at the same rate of the cost. And you are seeing many people saddled with debt and they have a right to be upset. But canceling that debt for people that are educated and making working people that start a business pay their debts to the Small Business Administration doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem fair that someone that didn't go to college like myself, that just went to work like myself, should have to pay their debts. And believe me, I had business debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in business debt that I paid off over time. No one forgave my debt, nor did I ask them to. And you have Randy Weingarten convoluting um, PPP loans, which were designed to be forgivable. And student loan debt. And it's not going to work. It's education that's changing. Just after 11 o'clock, consumer confidence has diminished. We're going to talk about what happens in the world when people are afraid. Next.